John chapter 21. How many of you in here have said or been in a, a situation like this or, or something similar? Um, you, you find yourself uh, in a pickle, right? In a negative situation, in a little, uh-oh, moment. Like you got pulled over from speeding. How many people in here got pulled over from speeding? Go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, so most everyone in here. All right, good. And you said something like this, Lord, I, please, Lord, please, let this officer just give me a warning. If he does, I promise I will never speed again, right? How many of you have done that before? Raise your hand. A couple of you. All right, good. Or maybe maybe a little bit more positive. You were at a, maybe a youth, a Christian youth camp or a, maybe a men's retreat or a woman's retreat and you, and the Lord really moved in your heart. I mean, you really resonated with what the, the teachers were saying, you know, the scriptures. They resonated with your heart. And you said, Lord, when I go home, I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to pray for two hours every single day. Everyone, anyone ever do that? Or how about this? I'm going to go home and I'm going to witness to all my friends, tell everyone that I know about the gospel. Right? We've, we've all done something similar, right? Make these grand epic promises to the Lord. And, and, again, and I want to point something out. They're, they're noble. They're, they're sincere. They're passionate. Yet they're also unattainable, right? And this morning, if you've answered yes to any of those questions in the affirmative, you've answered yes to any of those questions, we see ourselves in the same boat as Peter over the last couple of weeks. We've been walking through the Gospel of John, and we've seen Peter himself make these grandiose promises to the Lord. Although all these people will, will fall away, I won't. I will never leave you. I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And we know that Peter had an epic promise, but it was also led to his epic fail. He fell flat on his face. And so this morning, the last time um, we saw Peter make this is in John 13, Mark chapter 14, is another passage that describes this. Um, again, this grandiose promise that Peter makes, I will never leave you. All, all these people will fall away, but I will never leave you. And we know that Peter failed, but today we see the love and the forgiveness and the restoration of grace handed out to Jesus to Peter towards his disciple. And not only towards Peter, his disciple, uh, Jesus' disciple, but us as disciples of Jesus. We also, again, we've made these grand promises and these, these things to Jesus. And yet, as his disciple, when we fail, he brings us back in to a re- uh, reconciliation, to a relationship that is restored with him. And so when I, I, I want to hear this word restoration, because we're going to use it a lot as we go through this message. And have this definition in mind. Restoration is the removal of enmity, the removal of strife, the removal of friction, and the returning of fellowship between two parties or two people. So think about that definition as we continue to go through John chapter 21. So first, an invitation of restoration. An invitation of restoration. A quick observation, as I already alluded to in my prayer, you would think that John would have and could have ended the book of John in chapter 20, right? After this great resurrection story, Jesus shows himself to the disciples, and, and we see that he again gives in verse um, 30 the, the kind of the purpose of the book, that Jesus did all these things, and, and a lot of these things he, we aren't mentioned in this book because, as he says in the end, it would take too many volumes to write. But the purpose is that you would see and believe that Jesus is the Christ. And at that point, it's like period, end of story, end of the gospel. But again, it would leave the reader, it would leave us in suspense. Well, what happened with Peter? That would be the big elephant in the room. What happened with Peter? He made this big promise, and last we saw, 
he failed. So what did Peter, what did Jesus do? Therefore, John, I think inspired by the Holy Spirit, but I think this, inspired by his love for Peter. He didn't want the, our, our last thoughts about Peter to be that he was a, a failure. So his love for Peter, he answers this question. He gives us John chapter 21. He gives us this epilogue about the restoring grace of Jesus in Peter's life. So let's look at it. In John uh, 21 verse 1. This Jesus revealed, that word revealed means this was intended. There's a specific purpose that Jesus is intending to accomplish, to have an end result. So this is a intentional meeting with Jesus and his disciples. This Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, synonymous, just different names for the same sea or lake. And he revealed himself in this way. Now, if you remember in Matthew 28, after the where, where Jesus comes and meets the disciples, he tells them to, to go to Galilee. So after, you know, the, the fireworks of Good Friday and the Easter and the resurrection, uh, the disciples head up north. They head, they head out of Jerusalem, they head up north, and they're waiting for Jesus to show up. And, and John gives us, there's about seven disciples in this little party waiting for Jesus in Galilee. And he names in verse 2, he says, there's Simon Peter there. Well, we know who Simon Peter is. There's Thomas, right? Remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas, called the twin. Then there's Nathaniel. You guys remember Nathaniel? He's one of the disciples. And in John chapter the salty disciples, when Philip said, hey, I, I, we found the Messiah. We found Jesus. And Nathaniel's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? Remember him, the skeptic? Um, he's there. Uh, and then we also have the sons of Zebedee. The sons of Zebedee are who? James and John. We know that. And then two other disciples who were together. Now, that's kind of a funny, that last little section, that last little uh, sentence right there. The two other disciples, right? I mean, can you think about those disciples? John says, hey, guys, you know, tells the disciples, hey, I'm going to I'm going to write this epilogue, John 21, talk about this great story of restoration with Peter, and I'm going to put you guys, I'm going to, I'm going to put you guys all in there. You guys are going to be in the Bible. And they're like, yes, we've made the Bible, you know? And then all of a sudden they're reading, and it's like, you know, there's Peter, there's Nathaniel, there's James and John, and then the other two disciples, you know? Like, can you think of those guys reading and be like, oh man, you know, what's going on there? Kind of funny. Those little details, I don't know, they, they get me. I like those little details. But verse 3, Simon Peter says to them, I am going fishing, as Randy so eloquently uh, emphasized, which I love. And they said to him, "Uh, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Always a good idea, in my opinion, and Scripture's opinion, to go fishing when you're waiting for Jesus. I get to use this with Rita now. She's like, what are you doing today? Well, I'm seeking, I'm waiting for Jesus, so I'm going to go fishing, you know. Um, uh, Peter doesn't like, the point is, Peter doesn't like to sit around and wait right here. Peter's a man of action. Jesus says, go to Galilee and wait for me. He's like, he's sitting around, he's twiddling his thumbs. You know, he can't sit still. He's always got to be doing something. So therefore, he says, I'm going fishing. Some of you are just like Peter. You can't sit still. You always got to be doing something. It's a, it's a blessing and a curse in your life. And so they go fishing. And then we see in verses 4 through 6 that, again, that they caught nothing. And the guys fish all night long and they catch nothing. And the reason why they fished at night back then is they would, they would catch the fish at night. Then the morning when the mark would open, they would go and sell their fish. So there might be a, a way here where it's like, you know, Peter, James, and John, these guys, they're like, they need some income, right? While waiting for Jesus, they need to do something to work to provide some income so they can eat and feed the family, so to speak. So they go fishing all night, but they don't catch anything. And then all of a sudden, there's a stranger on the beach. We know it's Jesus, but they, it's far away. They can't really recognize him. And this guy calls out, which is a question you ask all fishermen. Hey, 
He says children. It's a kind of a slang term like kiddos or dudes. He goes, did you dudes catch anything last night, right? Jesus is screaming this over to them about 100 yards off the shore. And they said simply, no, right? No. And so then Jesus tells them to, hey, take your nets and throw it about eight feet over to the starboard side or the right side of the boat. Back then, the boats were about seven and a half feet wide and about 27 feet long. We have a, a couple of those boats in museums today. You can go see the boats that Jesus and them uh, would fish in that they were. So he said, hey, throw a net about eight feet to the starboard side, to the, to the right side of the boat. And um, you, can, you can see this, that this actually should remind us of another very similar situation in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus first called the disciples to him. It's a very similar situation than this right here. Uh, Jesus is on the shore, they fish, they catch nothing. Jesus says, hey, why don't you guys go throw your nets here? Except in that case, in Luke chapter 5, Peter pops off. He knows that Jesus, Peter pops off and says, hey, uh, we're fishermen, you're a carpenter. Please don't tell me how to fish, Right? But then they said, okay, but we'll still do it anyway. And then they throw their fish, uh, throw their fish, they throw their uh, net uh, on the other side and they catch a ton of fish and the net starts to break. And all of a sudden at that moment, Luke chapter 5, they, they, they recognize who Jesus was. They, they, they worship him. Oh, we're not worthy to be in your presence because we are sinful and you are the Lord. Well, John puts this together. John recognized that this situation, when they were first called by Jesus in Luke chapter 5, this is the exact situation. Jesus is saying something. So in verse 7 it says, The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. It is the Lord. It re- John recognized the situation. Now what a great phrase it is. It's, that's only a phrase of, of statement of fact of like, that's the Lord over there, but I believe it's a statement of worship. It's a statement. Because we know the disciples threw the boat, uh, threw the net on the right side of the boat again, and they caught 153 fish immediately. And again, John recognized, it is the Lord. I want to ask you that question. Have you ever had those moments in your life? Uh, those moments where you just sit back, where the Lord moves in your life, and in some way, personally, um, financially, some way in your family, does something amazing where the only explanation is, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. Have you ever had those moments? They can be big, life-changing moments, or they could be small, daily moments. Some of the big, life-changing moments for, for our family is just like, man, when I met Rita, you know, um, that was a, a, that was a, it is the Lord moment. Um, you guys know the story. We met in New Mexico. She was in Colorado. I was in Arizona. And the Lord, by His providence, both took, brought us to English Class 101 at the University of New Mexico. It was the Lord. Um, it was the Lord that when I got a job with FCA, it was the Lord that I planted the Crossing Church. We started out with nine people. God's grace over these last uh, eight years, we've grown and we've had this tremendous influence uh, individually over the city and the state, the country, and even the world and the Czech Republic. Why? But it, 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 what's the it is the Lord. Uh, with, with, with Stephen individually, my wife has been talking to him and just looking over his life over the last couple years and, and point out certain things that are happening in his life and saying, look, this is the Lord looking out for you. It is the Lord. How about you? What are those moments in your life where you recognize that Jesus is right there with you? It is the Lord. What a great little exercise of worship this week is just take the time this week and big moments and the little moments and see where Jesus is moving, where Jesus has moved, where Jesus has blessed. It is the Lord. Statement of worship. Well, 
Simon recognizes with John. As soon as Simon hears that, it says in, that John, he, uh, Peter puts on his outer garments, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Um, Peter's the only guy that I know that thinks it's a good idea to put his clothes on to go for a swim, right? Usually we take them off. He puts them on. It goes for a swim. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land. They were about 100 yards off. Now, I got a question. Why didn't Peter just stay in the boat? Why did he have to jump in right away and try and swim to the shore? Why did he do that? I mean, you have six guys rowing, you know, and one guy swimming. I mean, can't you see the guys rowing in the boat? And you're like, hey, Pete, you know, you could have just stayed with us as they row on by, right? And he's kind of, you know, swimming in the water. Why did he jump in? We'll answer that in, the, in a second. Well, they finally get to the shore, and Jesus has breakfast waiting for him. Waiting for all of them. Nice charcoal fire is going. He's got bread. He's got fish on charcoal. We all know that anything cooked on charcoal grill tastes better, right? And on top of that, Jesus is the one cooking it. You know, so this is the best breakfast ever. I bet you he could beat Bobby Flay, right, in a cook-off, right? Um, and so here he is cooking. And they get to the shore and they come to him. And Jesus says to them, to the disciples, he says, hey, grab some fish to add to what I've already prepared. He didn't need the fish, but he says, hey, just bring some more fish. But he's doing this for a very specific reason, to point something out to Peter in particular about bringing the fish. So who grabs the fish? We see that Peter grabs the fish. And how many fish does Peter grab? Does he grab like, you know, five extra fish, ten extra fish? No, Peter does what? Verse 11, Peter went aboard and grabbed the whole net. He grabbed the whole net. 153 fish he brought to Jesus. I mean, can you see the other disciples, you know, like, really, Peter? The whole net? 153. What is Peter doing? What is Peter doing? He's still performing for Jesus. He's still trying to earn favor with Jesus. He's, he jumps out and swims. He's striving. He's looking, look at me, Jesus. I'm trying to swim to you. He's, hey, give me some fish, Peter. Look at, look at me, Jesus. I'm bringing all these fish to you. He's still performing. He's still trying to earn approval and forgiveness by proving himself to Jesus. This is why John points out these details, and so does Jesus. But what's Jesus' response to Peter and all of his disciples? It's a gospel invitation, actually. Come and have breakfast with me. It's a a gospel invitation. He, he, He points them back to the resurrection. You don't need to strive. You don't need to work. That's already been accomplished for you at the resurrection. Verse 12, Jesus says, come and have breakfast with me. What is he saying? Jesus here is using, again, a physical reality to explain a spiritual truth. This this breakfast that Jesus has cooked, they didn't deserve it, but he cooked it for them anyway. They didn't, they didn't add to it until Jesus said, hey, give me a couple fish. Jesus prepped the bread. He prepped the fish. He, he, he got the coals hot enough. He cooked the meal. And he did this all because he loved them, not because they deserved it. This is a gospel invitation. And not only that, we know throughout Scripture, especially in this culture, is that when you invite someone over to eat with them, it's a very intimate moment. It was a, it was a, a, a fellowship moment. You, you guys are my friends. And not only is Jesus saying, you are my friends, but also when, when someone sinned against you, if you offer them to come over for a meal, it was a way of saying, I forgive you. Let's be restored. So this is what's taking place here with Jesus cooking them a meal. One, it's a a gospel invitation reminding Peter in particular, hey, I've already done the work. 
It's been finished. It's been accomplished. All you have to do is come and eat. So this breakfast is actually pointing back to the resurrection, to the cross and the resurrection. I've always accomplished salvation for you, forgiveness and joy. All you have to do, Peter, is come and enjoy it. Let's eat it. Rest in that. Some of us in here are a lot like Peter. We, we still have a tough time applying the it is finished part of the gospel, don't we? Uh, we still, we, I mean, we believe that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We, we believe that, we receive that, but we, but we can't rest in that truth. Some of us still have that personality where I got to still do something. I still got to do something other than rest. Well, C.J. Mahaney in his book, The Cross and Life, um, makes this exact point that Jesus is trying to point out to Peter, that making these promises and still striving and straining to prove our love for Jesus and looking for His approval, it doesn't need to happen. You don't need to be doing it. It's already been done accomplished by Jesus. All you need to do is receive it and rest in it. C.J. Mahaney says in The Cross-Centered Life, he uses this great illustration of plate spinning, right? And we've probably seen these guys on TV, right? They have their, they have their rods, they put their plates, and they put the, the plate on the rod, and they start to spin it. And next thing you know, they got 20 plates, and the, they're spinning it. And all of a sudden, one of the plates, you know, as they get to like 18, 19, the first plate there starts to wobble. What he has to do? He has to run down, he has to spin that plate. Now he's just, for the next, you know, 10 minutes, he's just running up and down, spinning plates. But what eventually happens? They all crash. They all fall. Why? Because he can't keep it up. This is what C.J. Mahaney says is about for the Christian life. Many of us view our relationship with the Lord. He's satisfied. He's happy. We have a good walk when we keep all these plates spinning. We got a good Bible study going prayer life is going well. We're making Sunday gatherings and life group on a consistent basis. And then, then we're also serving and then we're also giving, right? And all of a sudden we're just, we're just trying to keep all these plates spinning to prove to the Lord that we love Him. And then what happens? They crash. They crash. And so the test is, C.J. Mahaney says this, if, this, if you might be bent towards this way of, of, of proving your love to Jesus, he says this, um, on a Sunday, um, sometimes we come in on one Sunday and, and he says, steward, he uses him, put your name in there, and you, and you sing songs and praises with God with evidence of sincere and zeal and you're passionate and you're raising your hands and you're swaying and like, everything is going good. Why? Because you had a really good week of plate spinning. And then the next week, you had a really bad week of plate spinning. You didn't get in the Word enough. You didn't pray. You had an opportunity to serve, and you didn't do it. And this is what he says. He says, Stuart is hesitant to approach God. He finds it difficult to worship freely because he feels that God disapproves of him. His confidence is no longer in the gospel. It's his own performance, which hasn't been good of late. Then he asks this question. Do you often find that you're more aware of your sin than of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross? Can that, does that resonate with anyone in here? I know for me it, it did at a number of times in my life. We're performing for God. This is what Peter's doing. Look at me, Jesus. I'm, I'm swimming to you. I'm, I'm going to give you all these fish. I know you just asked for a couple, but I'm going to be, you know, go above and beyond. And Peter, and Jesus says, stop. Stop. I've already done this for you. You're already accepted. You're already loved. It is finished. Just come and be restored by my grace and rest in what I have accomplished for you. 
So Jesus is inviting you and me this morning to rest in the invitation of the gospel. Yes, do Christians work hard? Yes, do we, do we want to study our Bibles? Do we want to pray? Do we want to serve? Do we want to give? Yes, but the motive is entirely different than Peter here. We're not looking for acceptance. We're not looking for approval because we've already been accepted and approved by what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection. So that's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is that the motive of restoration, verses 15 through 19, the motive. In John 21, 15, it says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Then feed my sheep. We, we see this, this, this pattern here. It's a three-prong approach to restoration. We see that Jesus asked Peter a question. And it's really a heart question. And we'll see that, that, that Jesus is, is, is bringing this back to when Peter denied him and betrayed him. And it's a hard question. Jesus doesn't ask him, hey man, why'd you betray me? He says, do you love me? He's getting to Peter's heart. The second thing is we see the response from Peter. It's actually a response of repentance. And then we see the third thing, we see the third aspect of this is that Jesus responds with forgiveness and restores Peter. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep. So he says this three times. The third time, um, when Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? We see in verse 17, it says that when Jesus asked him the third time, Peter was what? He was grieved. He was sad. Why? Because Peter knew exactly what Jesus was doing. Peter was asked these three questions, do you love me? Because again, Jesus was reverting back to Peter to remind Peter that he betrayed him three times. Charles Spurgeon said this, that a man's repentance should be as victorious as his This is what Jesus is doing. He's calling Peter to repentance from his betrayal, but he's getting at the heart issue. In fact, Jesus is actually blending a couple of events where Peter again made this epic promise, right, and yet failed. Who was Jesus referring to in his question in verse uh, 15? When he had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Who are the these in which he's pointing out? It's the other disciples, Do you love me more than these other disciples that are with you? Why? Because it was in John 13 where he made that public profession in front of them. In fact, accused them. He says, he he compared themselves, he compared himself to them. He says, all these other people, they'll fall away. But I love you more. I will never fall away. So one, all these, he's having Peter make a public statement of repentance as we see to those that he compared himself earlier to. And then also notice again the charcoal fire. Jesus had a charcoal fire going on the beach when Peter came. These little details are so amazing. When was the last time we saw Peter around a charcoal fire? You guys remember? It was in John 18 in the betrayal. Remember, he was warming himself around the charcoal fire when he denied Jesus. And that third time, he made eye contact with Jesus. Remember the little middle school girl? Hey, you're with that guy right there. Hey, don't you love that guy, Jesus? And what was Peter's response? I never knew him. So this charcoal fire, this the sight of the charcoal fire, the smell of the charcoal fire would have reminded Peter of his Worst night ever in his life. Smells tend to do that. We were at man school and Trey King was talking about smells. He was talking about, um, you know, after, I don't know, 20 plus years out of being out of the Green Beret, he had to go to his little footlocker down in the basement to get a, a neck brace. And he said when he opened up that chest, the smells came back to him. And it reminded him of his life as a, as a Green Beret. And this is what's happening here. 
Uh, Jesus is using the sense of smell again to convict Peter of his sin of betraying him. This is how detailed Jesus is in his restoration to you, to me, and to Peter. He takes that smell of charcoal to be the, that Peter would associate the worst time of his life to now bringing him back to restoration and being one of the best times of his life. That's how intimate John, uh, um, um, John points out that Jesus loves Peter. But the reason why Peter is grieved because he recognizes that it was his sin, it was his pride, it was his betrayal, his cowardliness uh, when he was betraying Jesus those three times. So here we see that he repents. He repents with humility in his confession. Notice his responses are simple and personal. Lord, you know I love you. The first two questions when Jesus asked, do you love me? He used the word agapeo, agape, the the big word that we know for love. That's the most noble, the self-sacrificing love. Jesus asked Peter, do you uh, agape me? Do you agapeo me? And Peter's response was, I love you, but he used a different word, phileo you. I, I love you more as a friend, twice. Why is that so significant? Because Peter, in his humility, doesn't want to make another great grand boast. It's, 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 a, it's a response of, of humility. Uh, you know I love you. He uh, appeals to Jesus' knowledge of him instead of his own bravado. He, he drops the comparisons, the comparative language with the other disciples. He doesn't rely on his self-reliance. He says, Jesus, you know my heart. I phileo you. I love you. I'm not going to say I agape you. I agape you. I, I love you. He doesn't go to the extreme, to, to the top. Peter appeals, I mean, Peter appeals to Jesus' knowledge. He says to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So why does Jesus specifically ask Peter about his love and not his denials? We already talked about one. One, he wanted to have a a public confession because he, he had a public comparison where he failed. But again, he wants to get to the heart. And this is what repentance is. Um, I, you know, I've been a, a Christian for, I don't know, 20 plus years, but this is the first time I've heard repentance in this way, and it really resonated with me, so hopefully it resonates with you. We all, we all understand repentance as turning from one to another, but here this commentator says, repentance is always about returning to your first love. I thought that's a great way of summarizing repentance. It's always about returning for your first love. That's why Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? He wants to talk. Who do you love? What do you love, Peter? Repentance is always about returning to your first love. We know that we sin. We we follow after things other than Jesus, and we we love them for a second, but then we see that they don't lead to the joy, the the satisfaction. And then all of a sudden we are convicted in our hearts and we repent and we, we turn from those things that we are embracing and we go back to our first love. We go back to Jesus. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 12, the letters to the different churches? Uh, 12. Revelation chapter 2. And he writes a letter to the, the, the church of Ephesus. And, 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 and Jesus stands there and says, hey, church of Ephesus, you guys are a great job. You're doing a lot of good works out there. Your, your theology is spot on, but I have this against you. What is it? You have abandoned your what? Your first love. So I want to restore you back. Repent of that and come back to your first love. Here's the point of repentance and love. Love is always the centerpiece of repentance. It's always the centerpiece of repentance and restoration for Jesus with 
Peter, and then also with Jesus for you and me. It's always about returning to our first love. Christian's repentance is about forsaking our pride, our idols, those things that we're going after and giving our love to and confessing our sin, repenting and turning to Christ and our love for Him. Love is primary in repentance and in restoration. And I believe Peter took this lesson to heart for the rest of his life. Not perfectly, of course, but Peter understood since he was forgiven much, he would love much. And he wrote, in my, in my opinion, one of the great verses on love in 1 Peter 4.8, where he says this. He says, above all, I've, I've written all these books, I've written some books, but above all, keep loving one another earnestly, because sincere love covers a multitude of sin. Love is centerpiece. It's at the heart of restoration and covering up our sin. So where might Jesus be calling you to repent this morning? Where might Jesus look at you in your eyes and say, do you love me? Do you love me more than your success? Do you love me more than fill in the blank? Do you love me? Is there something that you're giving your love to, your attention to, your time to more than Jesus? It's time to turn. It's time to repent. And it's time to embrace your first love. So Peter was forgiven much, therefore he loved much. How about you this morning? Do you see how much you have been forgiven? I mean, pause and really sit and think. We're we're examining Peter. He's a case study in repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. And we can put our names and and we can put our place in in, in his place. We can put ourselves in his place as the case study. Do you recognize how much you have been forgiven? Therefore, extend that forgiveness, that love, to others around you in your life. The way of restoration is through love. That is the motive, is through love. Third, the mission of restoration is in 18 through 25. Verse 18 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourselves and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will still stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19, this he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. We see the mission is follow me. We see also in verse uh, 22, we see this word follow me. That's the mission to to follow Jesus. But before he gives uh, Peter that mission, Jesus predicts that, Peter, you're going to die for me. And your death will be through crucifixion. That phrase, you will stretch out your hands, is equated with crucifixion. You will You will stretch out your hands. You will be crucified. That's how you're going to die, Peter. And then in verses 20 through 23, Peter knows exactly what Jesus is talking about, and he doesn't want to, you know, die alone. So he points to John, and he says, well, what about him, Jesus, right? And everyone will think kids in here understands how this scenario plays out of these couple kids, right? I don't know how many times this has played out with our kids. You know, you take Maddie and Taylor, they're there. They're doing something they shouldn't be doing. And we, we go to Maddie and go, Maddie, all right, this is your punishment. And what does Maddie instantly do? Well, what about Taylor, right? This is what, this is what Peter, Peter's doing to John. You can see John give Peter that, that look like, shut up, Peter, you know. Leave me out of this thing, right? Don't. And then Jesus says, yeah, exactly, Peter. Leave John out of this. Don't, don't worry about him. You follow me. And this is a great practical principle for us this morning is we all have a, a calling from the Lord. We all have a, assignments from the Lord. It's different. 
Every one of us have a different calling, a different assignment. And yes, this is a true, this is a fact. Some of us in here might have a tougher time in life than others in here. That's just, that's just going to be part of life. Just like Peter and John. John ended up, you know, as we know, he didn't uh, die a, a martyr's death in the way that, that Peter did. He was, he was banished and, and to, a, to an island to be by himself. And the rest of the disciples all suffered horrific martyr deaths. We're not sure how John died. Um, but they had a different plot in life. And, and, and what Jesus is saying, hey, is stop the comparison. Don't worry about so-and-so. You follow me. I have a calling on your life. You follow me. I mean, just think about it, how blessed we are to here live in the United States and not in India or Iran. I mean, we're blessed here. We can, do, we can play the comparison game all day long, but Jesus says, stop that. We're all different body parts. He has all different callings for us. He's going to use us all in different ways. So stop the comparison. Keep your eyes focused on what I have you, and don't worry about what's happening with the person sitting next to you. Again, Jesus gives Peter his mission. Follow me. He says it twice. Follow me, follow me. Now I believe this follow me has uh, in the big picture the, the great commandment, the great commission. Follow me. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then go and make disciples. I think that's, that's the big banner which is under. But I think the context is actually getting to something very specific. We are to follow Jesus that Peter is to follow Jesus, that we are to follow Jesus as Jesus led in this situation, relationally, as a good shepherd. That he led the mode of being love. That he served. That he extended forgiveness and restoration. These are the ways in which I think Jesus is calling Peter to follow him specifically in this context throughout life. Peter, this is how I want you to lead your life with others. I'm restoring you back to leadership. You're going to lead the church. These are the attributes that you should have learned from me, following me. It would feed them, it would attend them, and the motives in which you should do that with a heart of love, forgiveness, that again leads to restoration. Just as I have shown you this morning, Peter. I think that's what he's getting at when he's talking about following me here, specifically in this context. And this is my prayer for us here at the crossing, that we would follow Jesus in this manner as well. Not only as a, as a leadership team, as a corporate body, but us individually, that we would follow Jesus just like this. Remember, way back in John 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory as the only one from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. That's the foundation of how Jesus came and how he was to minister to his people, how he used to show himself that he was the Son of God, that the glory around him would shine, would be seen through his grace and truth. And here we see he ends the book by showing Peter grace and truth. That is my prayer for us, because we've all probably seen or been around maybe the two extremes when it comes to um, repentance and forgiveness and restoration and rebuilding relationships. Uh, one extreme is this, is that we have such a, regular, a rigorous uh, restoration process that really only Jesus can, can walk through and accomplish, right? It's an abuse of truth. It's an abuse of truth, and it lacks grace. Maybe you've been in a situation where you have failed, and you've had a fellow Christian come to you and knowing you failed, and they just beat you upside the head with the Bible. There's no grace. Well, the reason why you failed is because you disobeyed. So therefore, obey, right? 
no grace. And then there's another ditch that you can fall into, is we overlook the sin and never address it. Act like it just, just like it never happened. Never call a person to repentance. And what is that? That's an abuse of grace, and it lacks truth. So those are the two ditches that we can fall under. We can be abused truth, or we can abuse grace. Abuse grace. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to fall in either of those ditches. And I know you don't want to fall in either of those ditches either, because you've experienced those ditches, and they they don't bring joy. They don't bring restoration. In fact, they bring bitterness. So I pray that as for us, as a as a as a church, as individuals that make up this church, church that we would follow Jesus, and that we would treat one another when someone falls with grace and truth. Look at your life and see which ditch, which ditch you would probably fall into, which ditch that you would probably um, relate to or tend towards. For me, for early on in my in my in my walk, it was I was a abusive truth guy. I showed no grace, and I was hard. And, and, and that doesn't produce anything but bitterness. And and over the last 15 years, as I've just been diving into the Scriptures and asking the Spirit to reveal Himself through the Gospel, and He's he's revealed my own heart, my darkness. And then then He's brought in His His, his grace that just abounds more and more. I was like, wow. I I see how you treat me. I, I need to follow you and treat others the same way. And so over the last 15 years, he's, he's had me on this journey, and he's, he's put people in my lives like my wife and my kids and, and many of you to teach me this principle. And I believe by God's grace, I've gotten a little bit more gracious. For some of you, you might tend to, to fall on the abuse of grace and, and never address the sin, the truth. And that leads to, again, a wayward lifestyle that doesn't end in joy. And so which one do you tend towards? Look at your relationships and which one do you tend towards and ask the the Spirit to reveal that to you and then through the Gospel, through the Word to to help you get back on a level playing field, a, a level road of grace and truth. Follow Jesus. This is my prayer as we in John 21 that we would be a people that would repent, forgive, and restore one another in love. Let me just wrap up with this. Back to verse uh, 18. Jesus told Peter, follow me, and as a result, you're going to die by crucifixion. Now, who in there at that moment would say like, well, I'm going to follow you, right? Uh, Sign me up for that one. Well, Peter does. And this is what's, this statement is, is very troubling, but it's also very hopeful. I think when, when, when Jesus says this to Peter, Peter's like, oh man, that's going to suck, right? But at the same time, he's going to be like, that's going to be awesome. Why? It's just going to be troubling because no one likes to talk about death, right? No one wants to talk about their own death, let alone knowing you're going to be crucified, right? That would be the ultimate death. That would, that would be terrible. So, no, so he's troubled by that. But at the same time, there's hope. Why? Because when it counts the most, in the end, Peter, do you love Jesus? Do you want to follow Jesus? In the end, he's going to say, yes. And he's going to be crucified because of his confession to saying, I will die for you. 
So in essence, there's hope because we see that Peter, in his last moments on earth, was what? A faithful servant. And in that, he has hope. So I think that's the way that I want to end my life. How about you? That when, it, when the chips are on the table, doesn't matter the past and the times we did fail, but when the chips are on the table, when death comes to our doorstep, that we would be a faithful servant like Peter. That we'd have his courage given to him by the Spirit of God. And our words would be like, I know that man. And I love that man. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Peter's testimony, his case study, his story. Because in many ways, it mimics us and our story and our, our path. And so, Lord, I know there might be some people in here that, that see and resonate with Peter's failure, and that's where they live. That's where they see their identity, and they say that Christ can never be happy with them because they, they fail over and over again. But I pray that they would see today, this morning, God's restoring love, the gospel where Jesus says, hey, I've already completed this. Your failures have been paid at the cross. My resurrection proves that the Father accepted my payment. You are forgiven, so come and eat. And Lord, also I pray that we see how Peter ended his life. He ended his life as a faithful servant. And when he died on that cross, the first words he heard in heaven were, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that is the words that we all want to hear as well. And we know we will hear those because we are in you. So thank you for writing the book of John so that we know that these things have happened so that we can believe that you are truly the Son of God, our Savior, and our Lord. And by you and putting our faith and trust in you, that we will be saved. And we will hear those words as well. Well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.